Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. This morning's reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 18. It's on uh, page 811 in the Bible's... uh, provided for you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pray with me this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we're grateful that we get to sit in front of it this morning, and we pray that by the power of your spirit that this would be more than just some exercise, some religious practice, but that we would actually be able, by your spirit, to hear your voice. More than words from a speaker, more than words on a page, more than, help this to be communion with you. And whatever you have to do to accomplish that this morning, we humbly and joyfully yield ourselves to you so that you would. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, family. It's good to see you. I've been out for a minute. I've been helping out a church in Duncan, a church that has their pastors for the past 25 years or so have poured into me for about about a thousand different ways. So I'm going to be doing that for a little bit, but I decided I I didn't decide. Nathan asked me. And so he's a little bigger than I am. So I just kind of do what I'm told. Um, He asked me if I'd kind of take care of this service today. And plus, here's, I'll be real with you. My babies don't live with me anymore. And now I get to see them every day on Sundays, unless I'm not here. Because it's not like they come over. They don't come see me unless we feed them. Unless we feed them. They came over yesterday. But do you know why they came over yesterday? Because I have a truck now and they wanted me to help them move. So they didn't come over to see their dad, who, by the way, is their hero. It just is. By the way, I'm happy to see you as well. Okay, I I figure if you're going to listen to me, I might as well, better part of wisdom says that I'm happy to see you as well. Glad to see you this morning. Let's do something. Let's do an exercise together. I almost invite you to close your eyes, but I'm afraid you might fall asleep if you do that. Um, But anybody good at imagining? Imagining. So when the boys were little, both of our boys have always been these daydreamers. Like Isaiah would go sit on a swing at a park and until he got facial hair, then it became really weird, um, which was about 12. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he would just swing all day, and he would just think and daydream. And Micah, he just paces back and forth. Still to this day, does it? He daydreams. So daydream with me for just a minute. Um, and if that involves closing your eyes, I'm okay with that. I'm not afraid of that. But just imagine for just a second, living day by day with a very real and profound sense of humility with such an accurate understanding of who we are that the the incessant need to defend myself and protect myself no longer drove my behavior and my thoughts. 
Imagine that I hurt deeply, not over minor inconveniences or irritation, but that I actually hurt over things that are supposed to hurt, that I was moved by the brokenness and sorrow of this world and people who are broken and impacted by it. Imagine living moment by moment with kindness and grace, not needing to be famous or made much of, but calmly living life without all of the fanfare. Imagine living with this deep hunger to know God more, to love God more, to trust God more, to follow him more, not just in some theoretical sense or, or, or theological knowledge, but in the depths of my being, being so moved by a hunger for God that it literally reoriented all of my life around knowing him and hearing him. Imagine living a life of mercy where we were known for grace and compassion, where we were violent towards the forces of evil, but we were patient with those who were broken by it. Imagine being the kind of people that when you wronged, they had come to expect grace from you, not in a way to walk over you, but just because that had been so much of your character that they thought that was your default. Imagine having a genuinely pure heart not duplicitous, not constantly wavering back and forth, not genuine one minute and self-absorbed the next. Imagine as living as one who pursues peace, who makes peace, who as much as is possible within them lives peaceably with all men and women, who's not easily stirred or angered, who is slow to wrath, quick to listen, gentle, easy to be real with. Imagine suffering for living a life of obedience to the clearly revealed will of God, not for being a jerk, not for picking religious fights, not because of spiritual arrogance, but simply because he is not of this world and therefore neither are we. And in that suffering, we don't lose hope. We don't give up. We don't jump ship. Rather, we count it all joy to be considered worthy to suffer for his name. Imagine being such a kind and gracious presence, such a powerful influence for good, that the lives of those around you are better because of your presence and the way that you carry yourself. Imagine living in regular communion with the Father in such a way that tradition and culture take a back seat to his voice. That there is this continual pursuit of, and practice of learning him and knowing him. Imagine if lust didn't rule your heart. Imagine if anger was a stranger to your soul. Imagine if even on the hard days of marriage, you were a constant source of life and strength. Imagine if people trusted even the simplest of yeses from you because your word was that trustworthy. Imagine if you didn't need to get back or get even at someone. Whether you lived with more concern for their soul and their well-being than you did about the damage that they may have caused you. Imagine being the kind of person that is faithful, ridiculously faithful to lend a hand to help those in need. That your default was not to evaluate the need, but your default was to help. That you were the kind of person who going above and beyond what is necessary or required of you is just a fundamental part of who you are. Imagine being the kind of person who not only loved those you liked, but those you didn't. Not only those who love you, but to love those who hate you as well. What if your posture towards the multitude of people that you encounter on any given day was the same? It was that of love and you desired their best and their ultimate good. 
above all that they might do, above all that they might believe, about all the many different ways that they might sin. Imagine giving to those in need whenever it was in the power of your hand to do it, so much that it was your default reaction. Imagine being men and women whose life was defined by prayer and communion with the Father so regularly and deeply that we spend time detached from the chaos of the world and engaged with the Father's beautiful presence. Imagine not worrying about my clothes or my money or my paycheck, but about laying my head down in rest and peace, knowing that the Father who closed the lilies of the field cares so much more for me that I don't have to concern myself with an ounce of it. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know what that is? That's Jesus' definition of life in the kingdom. Isn't it beautiful? I mean, isn't it compelling? Doesn't it stir your heart? Compelling, yes. The question is, is it possible? Eh, If you're like me, that sounds good, Jesus. But have we met? (laughs) have we met and here's what I want to submit to you this morning I think that it's not only possible I think it's expected look at the end of this text Matthew chapter 7 verse 24 Pastor Nathan opened this context of this series on this sermon and he started with this Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and what? Does them. Now, what happens a lot of times whenever we read things like this is we want to spiritualize that. And we want to kind of say, well, Jesus is setting the bar so high that we can't possibly live that. And he's pushing us to our need for a savior. And I believe that there is some validity to that. I believe there's some truth to that. However, when, whenever we say that, what tends to happen is we forget that he actually means he expects us to live this way. This is actually the will of God for your life to live in this beautiful, compelling way. In Jesus's mind, he expects his followers to actually live this way. This isn't some far-off pipe dream. This is actually what life for the followers of his kingdom is to be like. It is deeply rooted, immensely rooted in the practical for Jesus. If you're reading in the ESV, if you back up to chapter 6, verse number 1, you will read this. Beware of what? Practicing your righteousness. In other words, in the mind of Jesus, righteousness wasn't just some theological concept, and especially it wasn't just this concept of imputed righteousness. Anybody know what the word, the concept of imputed righteousness means? Okay, you should. It's good for your theology. Okay, I don't, we don't have time to really unpack every ounce of theology here today. Sermons don't answer every question. Okay? They're, they're start of a conversation. And so if we need to have more conversation, that's good for us to do. Imputed righteousness means this, that the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ was given to me when I placed my faith and trust in him. There's nothing else that I need to do. I couldn't do enough, never could do enough, will never do enough. Jesus did more than enough, gave that to me, and now I'm clothed in his righteousness. Okay? That is a biblical concept that Paul unpacks throughout the New Testament. However, it's not the only shade of meaning when we read the concept of righteousness. Sometimes, hold on to this, Nathan can fix all of the broken theology that I give you today. I'm not afraid of that, okay? Sometimes righteousness means you actually do the right thing. 
Okay? These two are not opposed. They're, they're really not opposed. It feels like in our mind and in our heart that, that they are. But listen, in all of the things that Jesus unpacks in this text, they're all deeply rooted in the practical. He parses out things that are tangible, real life, incredibly pra- practical things. He defined life in his kingdom, life for his followers, in terms of practice rather than positions. Hold on, okay? I know this feels like unsafe, but it's not. He defined following him in terms of obedience rarely than just merely doctrine. For Jesus, it would appear that life in his kingdom was as much about what we do as it is about what we believe. Not because these two things are opposed and at war with each other, but because of this. Faith and living underneath that belief are in perfect harmony. They are not enemies. To say that you believe something and not live according to that belief reveals that you may not truly believe what you think you believe. Jesus says you will know the tree by its what? By its fruit. It is entirely inconceivable in the scripture for us to say we believe something that does not somehow influence the way that we live. This is really important for us in this moment in history because we have defined, and I think it's good, I don't want mean to bash things or anything like that, but we have defined faith in terms of positions that we hold rather than the way that we live. Again, you can default to errors in both of these directions, okay? You can go way too far on the practical side of things, and you can go way too far on the positional side of things when there's probably this beautiful harmony that they exist in that if we press into, we would probably be far the better for. Because this faith isn't just some kind of transaction. Nathan talked about this a few weeks ago. We've defined faith merely as transactional. I believe, I receive. Okay? And there is some of that. But that's not all that there is. Ladies, take a look at the diamond on your hand. If you don't have one, steal one from your neighbor. They don't need it. Take it. Um, Don't do that. Don't steal, right? Something in the commandments about that one. It's got many facets, right? It's not just one cut. There are multiple cuts in there. Faith is like that. Faith has many sides and many aspects, and there are many things that play in this. And sometimes what we do is we overdevelop one thought, and necessarily we underdevelop another. And what if we pressed into this? That being a follower of Jesus is as much about what I believe as it is about what I do. Like there is belief, there is also behavior. And I want to live in such a way that what I believe to be true about Jesus and his way of life shows up in the day-to-day existence that I have. Okay? So, now that I've confused you deeply, let's go back to this text. And when you fast, now pay attention to what you just felt right there. It's good to be aware of what's going on on the inside of you whenever the scripture is talking to us. What do you think of when you hear the word fast? Hunger? Hunger? Not today, preacher. Not today. Not today. Hey, listen, we're about to go have lunch for my son. One of them did really good on his ACT. I'll let you figure out which one it is. Actually, both of them did really good on their ACTs. They are nerds to their core, and I'm kind of proud. 
but we're going to go celebrate this sermon on fasting by eating. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Okay, we're going to feast at this table in just a moment. But you felt that little twinge, didn't you, when you read the text? Fasting, uh-oh, what's he say? Micah asked me a while ago, he said, are you going to tell us that we should fast? And I said, oh, listen, young one. No, I didn't really. <laughs> I kind of wanted to. But So what is this? You feel that twinge inside of you? Like, what are we really going to talk about? Is he going to tell us to fast? Should we fast? Should we not fast? And all of these things start to raise up in our minds and in our heart. And maybe you felt this at least initial reservation. Maybe even some resistance inside of you because maybe you're just unfamiliar with it. White people don't practice it as much anymore. Wasn't that an Old Testament thing? Is it healthy? Isn't it extreme? And so what we typically feel whenever this subject comes up, I believe is kind of a direct result of the culture that we live in in this moment. Now, maybe this is not true for you, but I feel like culture has shaped me far more than I really want to admit, okay? And in this moment right now, in this cultural moment, in the culture that you and I live in, the satisfaction of desire is hailed as virtue. Say that again. Right now, the world that we live in, the context that you and I live in, they say that whenever you have a desire, you should fulfill that desire because that's virtuous. And to deny yourself any kind of desire is actually unhealthy and damaging to your soul. Okay, This is the culture we live in, and again, we're not here to attack all of that, but fasting is seen as this extreme self-denial, and self-denial is viewed as an ultimate tragedy in life. And I, I kind, of, kind of with them, Okay, food is good. Food is good, right? Gideon came in, face covered in donut. Food is good. Food is good, right? Anybody with me? I mean, food is good. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. That doesn't mean we shouldn't live by bread. With me? Just that it's not enough. Okay, that doesn't mean we get to go without. We were built, right? We were built for food. We were built to need sustenance and nourishment and things like this. We will die if we don't eat, right? I mean, this is the truth. And so this kind of play back and forth is, how do I do this? Is this real, really? And here's, all these questions rise up when we read about the subject of fasting. So here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to answer none of them. None of them. Why? Because Jesus didn't answer them. Listen, Jesus says, when you fast, and nobody goes, uh, teacher, wait a minute, teacher, hey, what do you mean by that? He didn't, they didn't ask questions. Do you know why they didn't ask questions? Probably because they understood the practice. It was a familiar enough concept for them that they probably understood, and there weren't a whole lot of questions surrounding this. Likely it was a, such a common practice that rarely did people need clarity or an explanation, and Jesus doesn't give an explanation. What he does as he begins to reframe that it was practiced culturally, and he, what he does at a bare minimum is he assumes that his people fast. Notice he doesn't say, if you fast. To be fair, he also doesn't say you must fast. Everybody with me? So, he doesn't necessarily command it, but he does kind of look like he thinks we will. Okay, so what about this? He simply assumes that his people practice fasting. And he even puts this practice of fasting on the same level as prayer and on the same level as giving to those in need. 
He gives same parameters for each. He gives same warnings for each. He gives the same promises to each. Interestingly enough, giving to those in need, praying, and fasting are not strictly regulated in the Old Testament. One of the things that happens whenever we read about fasting is we go, well, that was an Old Testament practice, right? Well, in reality, probably about the only time that fasting is commanded is attached to the Day of Atonement. And the people of God throughout the Old Testament history fasted for multiple reasons that were not simply limited to the Day of Atonement. Matter of fact, what happens is this, is that culture and tradition and need and practice and habit, all of those things begin to shape this practice of fasting for the Old Testament saints. What would happen is this, you read through the pages of the Old Testament, you will find them fasting for a thousand different reasons. David prayed and fasted that his son, conceived in sin, would live and not die. Jehoshaphat, which is just maybe one of the coolest names ever, right? He was surrounded by multitudes of armies from the Moabites and the Ammonites and the termites and all those dudes, right? And he's surrounded and he's filling out numbered and he's like, what's going to happen? And, and he prays and he fasts. He declares a fast. And what they're doing is they're seeking God's aid. When Ezra comes back after being in captivity in Babylon, instead of asking the king to give help, he prays and he fasts that God would provide the help he needs and not the king. David fasts over and over again. But it's not just the Old Testament. It happens in the New Testament as well. Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus and his response was to fast. Cornelius was seeking God in Acts chapter 10 when he was fasting. When the church at Antioch was praying and fasting, the Spirit of God said, separate out me, Paul and Barnabas. Paul, this is, this is mind-blowing to me. Paul lists the trials and tribulations that he went through following Jesus. And in both of the lists he gives, he says, I was in fastings often. All the other lists are talks about things that were happening to him. Fastings is about what he does in response to those, not what's happening to him. In other words, Paul saw that this fasting practice would help him in the hard moments of life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, they walk up to him and they go, hey, uh, teacher, listen, got a problem here. The Pharisees, they fast. The disciples of John, they fast. Your disciples don't fast. What's going on here? Jesus goes, hey, listen. While the bridegroom is here, there's no need to fast. But when he leaves, then they will fast. And Jesus left. Everybody remember that? He ascended back into heaven, coming again, all the good stuff, right? It was assumed by Jesus, I would say even, that his disciples would fast. Did you know that historically, after the New Testament, the people of God have been known for fasting? Did you know that the practice of Ramadan, some scholars, everybody look at me, you realize I'm not a scholar, right? Okay. If you haven't bought that yet, it will become abundantly clear in the next couple of minutes, okay? I'm not, but some scholars who've actually done their research, are intelligent people, believe that the practice of Ramadan the fasting practice of Ramadan in the Islamic faith was shaped by early Syrian Christians who practiced prayer and fasting. You mean that might have had its origin in Christianity? Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Knox, Brainerd. If you don't know any of these names, that's fine. Charles Finney. 
all of these people who have kind of been noted in throughout church history, all of them practiced fasting. And you say, well, wait a minute, preacher. Okay, he still doesn't command it. I agree. I absolutely agree. So why then would we practice it? Why would you and I practice something that he doesn't explicitly command? Well, what if, even though it is not explicitly commanded, what if it is still extremely useful? Some things that aren't commanded are actually helpful, right? In Psalm 69, David speaks of humbling his soul, his inner man, through the practice of fasting. In other words, this practice of fasting, this external thing, David believed could have a definite impact on his internal world. What if, just bear with me for just a second, what if your internal world isn't the subject of chance? What if you don't just have to feel what you feel and you don't just have to think what you think? What if you actually have some play in that? You remember when David says to his soul, my soul, why are you, why are you losing control? Because he's saying, listen, I feel something. And I'm not going to just simply become victim to that. I'm going to engage that in such a way. I mean, you go throughout scripture and what, what it almost presents this case is this, is that there are literally physical, active, practical things that we can do externally that actually have some sort of bearing on our internal being. I know this is like crazy in this moment, in this time in history, but in reality, that listen, there are literal things that David could do, he believed, that would shape the kind of person that he was and the kind of life that he lived. This concept that there are actual things that you and I can practice to train our souls, our whole person, to live in dependence and communion with God is common throughout the scripture. Paul will say, train yourself to godliness. You don't stumble into godliness. There are practical things that we do that help us there. The author of Hebrews speaks of those who should be mature by now, but they're not, and they're not mature because they didn't train themselves by constant practice. In other words, there are practices and activities that you and I can engage in that will definitely impact the way that we think, the way that we feel, and the way that we behave. At least to some degree, and I will admit, you, you have to be clear on this. Not... This is not all-encompassing. There are many things that shape who you are. Not one singular thing shapes who you are. There are many things that shape who you are. Where you were raised, when you were raised, who raised you, what you've experienced, what you've gone through, what you've tasted, what you've seen, where, what part of the world you were in, all of these things shape you. But at least to some degree, the things that you do Shape who you are. This is not only biblically accurate, this is scientifically accurate. Again, I'm not a scholar and I'm not a scientist, right? I'm not going to play armchair psychologist today. I'm not that guy, okay? Take a simple practice. What do you do the first thing when you wake up? Go back to sleep? <laughs> okay, got it, okay. What else? Somebody else, give me something else. Check your phone. Okay, let's take that one for just a minute because that's a good one. That one helps. Let me do this for just a minute. What if, rather than, first thing you do when you roll over is check your phone. What if you set up on your bed, you 
Set up good and straight, right? Because it's hard. You don't want to go back to sleep doing this, though you might. It's okay. God's okay with sleep. And you just put your hands on your knees like this. Now, this doesn't have to be long. But you just open your hands. You say, Father, whatever you have for me today, I take it. Father, whatever I'm holding on to today, I release it. What if that's the way I started my day rather than looking at my phone? I'm not telling you to do this. I'm just asking you, do you think it would have some sort of impact or bearing on the rest of your day? It may or may not spare you from trouble or hurt or heartache or any of those things, but it may definitely shape your soul. What I'm telling you this morning is that the things that we do shape who we are. And if that's true, then that means you and I have hope of something different and something better. I'm not subject to blind chance, right? And so there is hope in this. And so that practice of fasting, along with all of these others, are just simply this. They're ways, concrete ways of training and disciplining the soul. And fasting disciplines our appetites. Have you ever felt like your appetites were getting the best of you? Like this week, this is, like sometimes I hate how life works. Like this week, I spent more money than I should have spent on things that I didn't need. Because my appetites that I subsequently was going to talk about on Sunday got the better of me. Have you ever felt like, like there was nothing you could do when your appetites were getting the better of you? There is something you can do. You can actually live with self-control. But you won't stumble into it. You're not just going to wake up tomorrow and be self-controlled. That's practice. That's things that we do that develop and train the soul to be able to do that. Especially, listen, where I intentionally, intentionally abstain from things and intentionally pursue things. Please, I don't have time to really unpack all the details of fasting. But fasting is not about just stopping food. If you just stop food and don't pursue Christ, you've missed the point of fasting. Okay? You can't just do the negative. You gotta do the positive, okay? So skip a meal. I skip breakfast most days. It's how I stay in such healthy shape. <laughs> What's that? I'm on camera. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, I know it. We're gonna delete all of the footage for me, okay? And we're just gonna leave the good guys up front, okay? Um, so that's not gonna be helpful for me, right? It's not gonna train my soul. That's what I do all the time. Okay, so if I figure out some way to do this, and in that moment that I abstain from something, I pursue the face of God. That's what fasting is. And what this does, this, has, this teaches me to deny myself. Do you know one of the fundamental concepts of following Jesus is self-denial? And in a world that says, given to every indulgence, Jesus says, no, self-denial is some of the ways that we flesh this out. And some of us aren't equipped to deny ourselves because we've spent so much time giving into ourselves. Dillard, uh, or Willard, I'm sorry, Dallas Willard said this. Self-denial is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God. (laughs) He goes on to say, I won't bore you with all of it, but he goes on to say that spiritual formation rests in death to self. And it cannot proceed except insofar as this foundation is laid and sustained. What he means by this, you can't follow Jesus if you don't deny yourself. And most of us have never practiced this. But fasting 
can help us do this. It's a means of shaping the soul to live within, in harmony with God's reality as Jesus taught and modeled for us. So, but as useful as fasting might be, it is always dangerous. And I want to, I just, I want to, because I think this is the direction that Jesus goes. Any spiritual practice has the potential to be dangerous. Do you know why that is? Because our hearts are broken. And so Jesus, while he recognizes the usefulness of these things, giving to the needy in prayer and fasting, Jesus also gives warnings for each because we can always do these things in ways that are destructive. As helpful as they are, we can always use helpful things in ways that are destructive and damaging. So I've got a, I'm working through some things internally and for a host of reasons right now. But one of the things that is abundantly clear to me in this moment is how my heart, not yours, mine, will take good things and turn them into bad things. So I spent almost 20 years pastoring, and pastoring is a good thing. The Bible says if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. And there are some things about ministry that shape my soul in beautiful ways. Like, and I won't. Weird. But there are also ways that because of the brokenness of this, that ministry was allowed to deform my soul. A good thing. But because of my heart, easily can become something that doesn't form me into Christ, but deforms me into Christ, away from him. Church can do that. Bible reading can do that. A thousand different things can do that. That's why Jesus warns, right? He says, listen, man, don't, don't be like the hypocrites. That's, what he, that's, the, that's the context in all three of these activities. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? Is a hypocrite somebody who tries to do something and stumbles? No. Is a hypocrite somebody who does something and fails at doing it? No. A hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be something that they are not simply for the soul of their reputation. It's an actor. It's a pretender. So Micah said, was it you yesterday who said, Dad, are you going to fast in order to preach this sermon? And I was like, nope. <laughs> nope, I'm hungry. <laughs> like I'm hungry. And, and somebody brought up, was that hypocritical? It's not hypocritical to learn about fasting and have never yet practiced fasting. That's not hypocritical. Hypocritical would be for me to pretend to be something I'm not for the sake of my reputation. It would be for me to look like I'm fasting whether I was fasting or not fasting so that you would think I'm such a spiritual bee. They were pretending to be something. Here's the truth. Listen to me. Please hear this. You can control your reputation or you can be genuine. But you can't do both. You can't do both. And so in all of these, Jesus is, so some people walk away from this text and they go, well, well, I'm not supposed to let anybody know I'm fasting or I'm not supposed to, I'm not supposed to look like, I'm supposed to look like I do every day. And what if those are really the means to the end and not really the point? Mm -hmm. 
What if he says to do these things in secret, not because it's so important that we do them in secret, but it's so important that we don't use these things in the wrong manner and try to appear to be something that we're not. What if he just, this, this is like, this blows my mind. What if really what he wants is for us just to be real? Like just honest. Do you know that the work of God always begins where you are and not where you should be? Sit in it for a minute. You say, preacher, you don't know where I'm at. (laughs) You're right, I don't. But he does, and he hadn't turned away. It says, your father who sees in secret. Do you know? Like, I used to be threatened by that, right? We were talking about this the other day. Somebody saw one of the preacher's kids. It's always the preacher's kids. We saw one of the preacher's kids grabbing a cookie that wasn't supposed to grab. And somebody said to him, hey, don't you know Jesus sees you? He dropped the cookie. (laughs) Drop the cookie and run. I'd have been like, well, if Jesus sees me, he obviously put it in my path to eat, and I just want to honor Jesus by eating this cookie, right? So, I mean, I understand, right? Whole kind of thing going, going on through here, right? And I used to feel like Jesus seeing every little move I make was threatening, but I don't see it that way anymore. Because I don't think he sees me because he knows everything. This, man, this has rocked my world. I believe he sees me because he pays attention to me. Do you know my knuckleheads do a thousand different things up here that you've never seen them do? That I do? And that's not because I have supervision. Like I take these off and I don't know who's sitting where. It's because they're mine. Because I pay attention. What if Jesus was not concerned about how well you did, but was concerned with who you are? Then I'm free. I don't have to guard my reputation. I don't have to pretend to be something I'm not. I can own it. I don't do this well. My heart isn't right. I'm bitter, I'm angry, I'm disturbed, I lack faith, I don't see, I don't believe, and never once, never once does he turn away. Because he didn't turn to me because I saw, because I believed, because I did well. He didn't turn to me because of me. And if he didn't turn to me because of me, then he will not turn away from me because of me. So, do we fast? What if that's not the right question? What if the question is, do I really want to live like Jesus says to live? What if the question is, do I really want to live into this kingdom vision of life? What if the better question is, what do I want out of life? Do I want the kind of life that Jesus talks about in his kingdom? And if I do, then am I willing to rearrange my whole life in ways that will help me do that? See, I don't like the question of what do I have to do? It doesn't, get, doesn't cover the bases. Not what do I have to do. Hey, 
warts and all, brokenness and all, my life is yours. I want to live into that way. And if that way means that I need to pray because it shapes my soul, then I will pray. If that way means that I have to deny myself, I will deny myself. If that way means that I have to get in community and I have to expose my faults and my failures and my brokenness, then I will do that because I want the king and his kingdom more than I want all of this stuff. It's not about what do I have to do. It's about what do I want. So now let me give you some practical steps, and i got to quit. I'm sorry I went long. Got all up in my feels. That's why I don't like preaching. It always gets me in stone cold emotionless most days until I get in this spot. So let me do this. Let me give you a helpful tool. Um, maybe take a spiritual audit of your life. So what that means is this. With a pen and piece of paper or something, sit down and walk through your day. How does it go? I start this way, I do this, I do X, I do X, I do X, I do X. Right? And some of you go, preacher, I got little kids at the house and every day is different. Write that down. <laughs> every day is different, right? Some days I love them. Some days I want to kill their father for giving them to me, um, right? All this stuff. So just take, an, take a brief overview of the way that your days go. And then this, this takes some self-awareness that most of us don't have, but practice will help. Look at those things and go, is there anything in here that is shaping my soul in a negative way? And if there is, I'm going to start small. If you've never fasted before and you walk out of here thinking that's what God told you to do, I don't recommend going 40 days right off the bat. Okay? Don't think that's wise. But you say, I need to change something because my life is directly built to accomplish what it's accomplishing. It is. It will always produce what we're putting into it. It will never produce nothing, anything more. So I look at my life. I look at something and I see something that is causing a negative effect on my soul. I'm going to change that practice and I'm going to put another practice in its stead. And it won't fix all of my brokenness, but it may help shape the way that I respond to life. And it may actually give me strength, hold on, to live like Jesus calls me to live. Again, we can go too far, right? We can be too practical with this and forget that there is a divine God who without him we do nothing, and without him nothing is possible. Practices are like a farmer who plants a seed in the ground. Farmers don't make things grow. You know that, right? They don't make things grow. They just do their best to cultivate conditions that will produce growth. Fasting, what it does, Scripture, what it does, praying, what it does, giving, what it does, is it just puts me in an environment that God can work in. What if we were known as people who practiced a way of life, of living for Jesus? Stand with me.
Father, thank you for letting me feel as much as I don't like it. Thank you for letting us think. Thank you for letting us listen and hear. We just pray that in all of these things, your voice would be what shapes us more than culture, more than tradition, more than preference, more than how we were raised, more than what we feel, more than what we think, but that we would press in and lean into your voice, that we would look to you to learn how to live, (laughs) that we would look to you to learn how to orient all of our life And that we would over and over again and again come back to you, our King, and find life in your kingdom. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.